Welcome to the next episode in the Women's Energy Council podcast series. Today, I'd like to introduce Ayatollah Jagan, Company Secretary and Chief Compliance Officer of Oando PLC. Over the next 30 minutes or so, Ayatollah will share her journey into the oil and gas industry, including comments on the impact of their focus on the sustainable development goals and the importance of these goals in particular during the pandemic we face today. Her love of the challenges faced in the oil and gas industry and the solutions that need to be implemented moving forwards. Her decision to move back to Nigeria from Bermuda. <laughs> and finally, the importance of networking to build sustainable and impactful relationships. Lovely to have you with us, Ayatollah. I wanted to start with asking you if you could give us a little bit of an insight into your career journey. You know, how did you start and kind of what was the journey from there to today? Thank you so much for having me, Amy. It's really a pleasure for me and an honor for me to be participating in this podcast. So how did I start? I started, obviously, my legal career having finished law school at the chambers of Chief Whitney Williams. So I started in practice. I did that for about five years. Very soon after I started private practice, I realized that my interest was in corporate law. Then I, and, and obviously got streamlined towards handling corporate law matters. Then I, in the middle of that, realized that I was very interested in corporate governance. I was company secretary on the board of some of our client companies and sitting into board meetings and just seeing the way the company was run and the various aspects of company management and what made for a profitable company. I realized that governance was a key criteria. This was way before Enron and uh, WorldCom and, you know, some of the corporate governance crisis that we've had, global crisis that we've, we've had to face. And so I registered to do the exams of the Institute of Chartered Secretaries and Administrators. It's now the Chartered Governance Institute because obviously things have evolved since those early days. And there's a lot more emphasis now on corporate governance globally. And so once I finished the exams, those kind of opened the door for me to move away from core legal work to more of compliance and legal work. And then Enron happened and I really felt that the passion for corporate governance was something that I really wanted to pursue. And so I decided to train again and do a master's in corporate governance and business ethics, which I did at the, one of the University of London colleges, Birkbeck. I did that part-time while I was working. By that time, I had, um, you know, I had moved to the UK for family reasons, and I was then living and working in London, but uh, working, well, outside of London with a fast-moving consumer goods conglomerate called, it was then called Sarah Lee UK. Having finished my master's in corporate governance and business ethics, it opened the door to, for me to take up a role in Bermuda, where I worked with uh, in the financial services sector, first with Citigroup and then with another financial services group as the senior corporate risk and control manager. And that saw me utilizing not just my corporate governance skills, but also risk management, getting involved in risk management and getting involved in legal work as well, because I also was responsible for legal. And then I had a choice between staying in Bermuda and take on a more senior role or moving back to Nigeria. And I really wanted to move back to Nigeria because I felt there was so much to give back. And I really wanted to feel I was making an impact, not just in at work, but also in my environment. 
And you must understand that also I had then become more involved in governance, corporate governance and compliance, particularly anti-corruption. And I felt that Nigeria was really the place I needed to be to really outwork everything that it was I had learned and to follow my passion and really make a difference. So I take, took up this role in an oil and gas company within the oil and gas industry. Literally 10 years ago, I took up the role at Orlando as chief compliance officer and company secretary, and I've occupied that role till date. And it's been an interesting journey. I mean, I, I understand the reasons for moving back to Nigeria, but Bermuda. <laughs> right? <laughs> Amazing. That must have been a cool experience though. It was amazing. I mean, Bermuda is really small. It's a small island. When I lived there, we were probably roughly about less than 80,000 residents and quite a lot of guest workers and, you know, foreign workers. So it was an amazing melting pot. It was a great experience because you got to meet people from all over the world. And it was lovely as well because um, the friendships, when you live on such a small island, friendships tend to be quite genuine and you know you do a lot of things together the role itself was quite demanding both roles that I occupied while I was there and that was another opportunity for me to grow in a sector that I wasn't too familiar with financial services and uh, I'm really thankful for the support I had from you know my various colleagues particularly my bosses and you know the opportunity to really grow again in that area You've, like you say, you've had experience in kind of FMCG and in financial services and now for the last decade in the oil and gas industry. What is it that interests you and, and I guess keeps you excited working in this industry? I think it's the challenges. You know, working in the oil and gas industry is very, very challenging. I mean, we, this year alone, we've seen a fall in oil prices with massive falling oil prices. I think if I even look at it over the decade that I've been working in oil and gas, it's been very volatile. Although for some companies who I guess used to the cycle, it, it isn't, it's something that's predictable. But I think we live in a world that's increasingly unpredictable. I also live in a country where oil and gas is of key importance from an economic perspective. And it's more or less is the engine that drives everything else that goes on in government and in the private sector. And, you know, also in, you know, and so for me to be a part of an industry that is key, not just to the viability of my company and sustainability of my company, but to the sustainability of the economy and of the country, it's critical. And I just feel I'm, you know, really at the heartbeat of the nation. Of course, we do need to diversify our income streams as a nation away from oil and gas, but this is what we have. And it's trying to make it work as well. That's something that really interests me. Trying to ensure that it's not a curse or seen as a curse, but seen as a blessing and that, you know, we're able to operate efficiently, effectively as an oil and gas company within Nigeria, that we deal with some of the things that holding us back, some of the things that are making it difficult for us to thrive and to grow. Again, talking not just as a company, but also talking about the enabling environment for the industry so that we're able to, for instance, compete with the international oil companies. We are able to get access to, you know, 
oil fields to be able to maximize value and extract value from them. But we do it in a way that is sustainable and that is also respectful to the environment and respectful to the communities that live there. You know, I think you're right. You said it's a challenging industry to, to work in, certainly. And I think even before this year, which, as you say, has been one of probably the most challenging, that there were barriers and, and difficulties already. The pandemic, though, has changed the world probably as we know it. How has Orlando responded to those challenges? Yeah, I mean, I think we have done pretty well out of it. Of course, it is challenging, but I think one of the things we always do is prioritize our staff. And this has become so evident, even to the employees. We had just recently come out of a great place to work survey and it's been overwhelmingly positive. We don't have the, I don't personally have the full results yet, but what's interesting is to see how the pandemic has endeared the employees even more. So the company changed the culture for the better as we've all come together to grow and cope with what has been a major shock, not just to, to the country, but also to us as a company coming fast on the heels of falling oil price. What's helped us also is some financial planning and management that we had in place in terms of hedges to hedge against the fall in oil price. And what's helped has just been the determination of the of all of us to just keep going in spite of you know we we've been able to grow a very resilient organization over the years that has you know that has become almost like part of our culture you know we've built resilience into who we are and i think that's helped us so the company remained committed to prioritizing and ensuring that employee health and safety was paramount. We closed down the office for a period of time in April and May, and we were fortunately very well set up from a technical perspective to work from home. And in fact, what we saw was an increase in productivity levels, particularly as employees became a lot more committed to the organization because they could see the organization really committing to them and to their well-being. We also then have now commenced a, a measured and incremental reopening of our offices, starting from the 1st of June. And, you know, we started with about 25% of our workforce, ramped it up to another 50% just this month in August. And the rest of the staff are working from home. I mean, and what we've done is taken into account, obviously, those members of staff who have underlying health issues and those who also have children who are not yet back at school and so they have to do that homework in. We've put arrangements in place to ensure that you know we're in contact with the Nigerian Centre for Disease Control so that we're able to care for and treat our staff who may have contracted the disease. We've also fortunately been able to retain all employees and you know we've not implemented any pay cuts again thanks to just the resilience of the commitment of management to the staff. And you know in the middle of this is all also seen the human side of the company. So the employees of Rwanda, we have this Humans of Rwanda thing, rather like Humans of New York. And we've run this Humans of Rwanda initiative for, I think, about two years now, because we wanted to also be able to, you know, you, you know, there's this saying that companies are wants to say where they say, our employees are the company and there's no company without our staff and our staff are the most important assets that we have. But in Orlando, it's, it is a reality. And so we wanted to not just say that, but see that in action and exhibit that and demonstrate that. 
So in what we did as, as the humans of Rwanda was to set up an aggregator platform called Tap to Reach All. And that's a unique initiative that we put up to. And the whole mission was to end hunger and alleviate poverty in Nigeria, one community at a time. And we used the period of the pandemic to select certain NGOs across Lagos State to locate those marginalized communities that they have been taking care of and resource them financially and with to be able to feed people in those communities. So we've been able to feed over almost 27,000 people across 19 communities in Lagos. And through that aggregator platform, we raised about 26 million, 26 and a half million Naira, but our target is to raise about 2.7 billion Naira and to continue, we, we've continued to feed those marginalized communities and just help people survive this pandemic because a lot of people have lost their jobs and there's a lot of uncertainty. The price of food has gone up significantly by about 30%. And so there's a need to, to assist our community to come out of um, literally starvation and poverty. I think that's incredible that, you know, even, and it shows such a fantastic culture where in an organization where you're battling your own challenges and, and difficulties, you know, as a team or as a business to then be able to give back still to others. It's a fantastic show of a really, really strong culture within the organization, which is incredible. The next question with that in mind and some of the kind of external work that you guys have been doing around that on the basis then of the work that you do, I suppose, both in and out of Orlando, we know achieving the sustainable development goals is key for you. Which of the sustainable development goals do you consider to be most relevant and important today and why? I would say the most important today with uh, what's happened with the pandemic is SDG 16, if, uh, so, sorry, SDG 17. If you'd asked me this questions last year, I would have said it was something else. But honestly, now I think SDG 17 is about partnership for the goals. And what we've realized is that it's really critical that organizations come together, countries come together, people come together to form strong global partnerships, local partnerships, and cooperate. Without that cooperation, nobody can do it by themselves. And I think one of the things that the pandemic has shown us is that there is strength in unity. There's strength in partnering to overcome challenges. And when things like this happen, Nobody can be an island, you know, and we, we've seen that. So SDG 17 is about partnering, forming strong partnerships to ensure that all the other goals are achieved. Now, the goals raise, I mean, the different goals that we as a company support, we have SDG 4, which is on quality education. So we have a foundation called the Orlando Foundation, and that foundation has been in place for, wow, over 10 years now, certainly before I joined the company. And it has a, like a five-pronged approach, which, which it implements through its Adopt a School initiative. So currently we support about 88 public primary schools across 23 states in Nigeria. We have well over half a million people who have been directly impacted in those 88 target communities since we, well, we started actually in 2011. We focus on girls, education of the girl child and vulnerable children living in northern states in Nigeria that have been affected by the Boko Haram crisis. And we give scholarships, we do infrastructure projects, educational infrastructure projects 
We provide sanitation and, and clean drinking water for the students. We've offered in total about 2,000, over 2,000 scholarships awarded to secondary school candidates. So because we focus on primary schools, we find that when the children are leaving primary school, some of them want to be able to progress to secondary school, but their parents cannot afford it. And these are very bright children. So we offer them scholarships to continue all the way through through to secondary school as well. And again, we're now looking at tertiary education and all opportunities. We have about 866 scholarships that we've given to undergraduates and also 20 scholarships for postgraduates. We also focus on, I, I talked about clean water and sanitation. SDG, that's SDG 6. We support water sanitation and hygiene by providing portable water supply, wash bays, toilets in our schools. Some of them actually don't have any of those. SDG 5 is something that's very important to us, which is on gender equality and the empowerment of women and girls. But, you know, we saw what we do. In, I mean, I spoke a bit about what we do in relation to the education of the girl child. And then we so are very much involved in SDG 2, which is zero hunger. I talked about the TAP initiative just now, but we also have a Green River project that we've implemented implemented in uh, the Niger Delta area where we've reached out to, uh, we've been able to reach about 38,000 farmers in over 120 communities and support them to be able to, to grow crops sustainably and increase their yields as well to be able to feed their communities. And then we've signed up to the action platform on SDG 16, which is a pet project of mine because it's about peace, justice and strong institutions. And you know, one of the things that you know I really care about is justice and equality and we have a lot of systemic inequalities and injustices not just within our industry but also within the country and so I feel it's important to not just support uh, or say a pay lip service to SDG 16 but to go further to support it by being one of the partners at the global level and signing up to the action platform with the United Nations Global Compact. And, and so, you know, we help in terms of crafting, we've helped in terms of crafting the narrative and the strategy and how businesses all over the world can actually implement this sustainable development goal without necessarily coming across as stepping on what is the preserve of government, which is to maintain peace in societies. We feel that businesses have a role to play in ensuring that, you know, we, we are, first of all, accountable, we're ethical, we're inclusive, we're transparent in everything we do, because that helps in creating a peaceful and just society. And then also that we deal, start dealing with all those systemic inequalities and injustices that where we see it we see them we call them out and then we advocate for change we lobby for change in those areas as well strong institutions will ultimately lead to a society where you know the rule of law is upheld where leaders are held accountable for their actions and then also where corruption and bribery in all its forms are minimized. And that's something that we have to deal with in our industry. And then, of course, climate action is another area in terms of SDG 13, eco-friendly practices that we've adopted at work 
also ensuring that we take an active role in reducing gas flaring and we partner with government and the other private sector organizations to support environmental education across our schools as well and recycling we're very big on recycling even in the office we encourage our staff to bring in their recyclables every friday and we recycle because you know unfortunately the state government and the local government are not very tuned in when it comes to recycling of waste that all sounds like, like a full-time job in itself. <laughs> it's incredible that there's so much commitment to all of those sustainable development goals. You mentioned obviously one of them being focused around gender and obviously supporting girls in education and, and beyond. So I'd like to, to touch on some of that. Obviously one of the reasons we're speaking today is because you were voted into the 275 influential women leaders list that the, the Oil and Gas Council put together. I wanted to ask you, I suppose, to start on the diversity and inclusion conversation is really have you seen a change in how diversity and inclusion is discussed and actioned in the oil and gas industry since you started and, and if you have then how and if you haven't why do you think that is? I think there's been a change obviously because also this has come on the agenda on the world agenda as far as the SDG 5 is concerned so it's been brought sense of it's been given some prominence and as a country we have signed up obviously to the SDG goals and we have our targets as a country that we have to meet and then those are then driven down even to setting targets as far as companies are concerned as far as government agencies and the MDAs are concerned so I think there has been been certainly more women getting involved in the industry. There's been a lot more focus on STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and math. Before, I think women were far less likely than men to study those subjects, particularly in Africa. But there has been quite a lot of input from other NGOs and also the private sector to aggressively encourage and assist women and girls to obtain equal access to education, particularly STEM subjects. And I'm talking about even organizations like Stanford, SEED, lots of organizations, the Clinton Initiative, the Sherry and Tony Blair Initiative. I mean, we work, the foundation, Wanda Foundation works with all of these organizations and we see a large focus on encouraging girls to get involved in STEM subjects. So we've seen that change. I think women have also become a lot more vocal and a lot more confident in speaking out against gender inequality, gender parity, and speaking for gender parity regarding pay, equal pay for the same job. So yes, we've also had some role models within the industry that have taken up the flagship and, and are pushing, you know, and breaking through the glass ceilings that exist. And it's easier for those then come, someone like myself to stand on their shoulders and those coming behind me to stand on their shoulders as well. In one of the things that we've seen recently in Nigeria is the local content policies and strategies um, have sought to provide like an entry point for promoting women's economic empowerment in the oil and gas industry. So in, I think it was sometime last year, late last year, the Nigerian Content Development and Monitoring Board, you know, release, issued a press release where it said it intended to roll out gender-friendly policies for the oil industry and that women operators in the Nigerian oil and gas industry would soon benefit from gender-friendly policies on access to funding, award of contracts, support for research and development. And then it followed up in June of this year with setting up a gender diversity, a gender diversity 
diversity, well, I suppose a gender committee and also appointed its first female member on its governing council. So that's a major change for the industry itself. And I think also that we've seen, like I said, more an organization like myself, of like ours, for instance, having more women coming into the technical roles, like as engineers, you know, in those functions that historically, you know, had been the preserve of men. And, you know, I think one needs to be intentional about gender diversity. It's not something that, you know, will happen unless you set aggressive targets because the women are out there. So we're not saying employ women who are not up to par. It's all about encouraging women who, you know, even are in the profession, but would have given up and done something else because they, they do not find the environment to be enabling of them or conducive for them. And so I think it's also about creating the right environment where women who are in engineering jobs, in those technical jobs, feel that they are accommodated rather than being, you know, things being made so difficult for them that they just feel they can't hold. Because ultimately women are going to have families. And so the job has to be flexible enough for them or the environment has to recognize that, but still recognize that they're bringing a lot of value to their role within the industry, irrespective of the fact that they're also juggling family at home. What advice would you give women who are either entering the industry today or those who are already in it? I think they first of all need to, I would say, be supportive of one another because that's really important. You know, it's great to have male champions of gender diversity, but we live in Nigeria in a very patriarchal society and we have very few male advocates or champions of gender diversity. So it's up to women to really support each other. I think also I would say develop resilience, develop a strong backbone. Do not be afraid to, you know, believe in yourself. Look for growth opportunities. Step out of your comfort zone. Feel confident in your ability. And then also do not be afraid to uphold your values and principles. Speak out when you have to speak out. Challenge sexism. Challenge gender discrimination. Challenge harassment of all kinds. And then prioritize networking. Because you need to network to acquire, to nurture, to sustain impactful and quality relationships within and outside of the industry. And, you know, when you have quality networks and quality relationships, whether they're mentoring or coaching relationships, it helps to build up your confidence and, you know, to get advice from somebody who's gone through and who can help you avoid the pitfalls. I think it's really, really important. I agree. I think people often talk about mentoring and and the importance of that. And and I would 100% agree. But I think sponsorship is also so important to have someone there in your corner who is actively, you know, putting your name forward for things and talking about you to other members of staff and and really kind of backing you on on your journey. Are those kind of mentoring and sponsorship, are those kind of things available at at Oando and, and kind of looked at in that way? 
Yes, they are. And, you know, I totally agree with you, Amy. But I think the sponsorship relationship grows out of a mentoring relationship. Because you have to have confidence in the person that you are sponsoring, that they will totally justify, you know, your confidence in them as a sponsor. So I remember when I first moved back to Nigeria and started this role, I had an, a senior lawyer within the profession, very well known, very well networked, very responsible and very influential approached me to mentor me. I jumped at it. And what I found over time, and we used to meet once a month, and it's interesting because he's one of the few gender advocates and gender champions that we have, I would say, even in, within, the legal, in, within the legal profession, but also just within the country at large. And we started off meeting very regularly, and then he was, he's always at the end of the phone if I need to talk to him. And then I noticed of late, over the last maybe four years, the role changed into one of sponsor. So if I we're facing a difficulty at work or I'm facing a challenge and I need a door open, I talk to him and he opens the door. He just, all it takes is a phone call and he speaks to, uses his network for my advantage. And I think that is really key. You've, you've really stressed on something very, very important that we need to use our networks, not just for us, but for other people and for those we're mentoring. We definitely do have that in Owando. I think it's something that I always look out for the younger women and push them forward and encourage them to build the confidence they need to position themselves to get involved in certain and involving them in certain discussions and in certain teams to be able to position themselves for leadership roles. Certainly within my team, that's something that I have done quite a lot of and pushing for them. When I first came into the role, I looked at everybody's job description. And it's amazing how women undersell themselves and and the first thing I did was just to rip everything apart. And I'm like, no, this is not what you are. This is not what you do. This is what you do. You have to use the right words to describe yourself. We find that so frequently, we know when we're inviting, especially senior women to speak on our events and on panels and, and so often, you know, they'll say, oh, I don't know if I'm the right person. I don't know if I have quite the right experience or I don't know if I've had enough experience in this area. And it takes, you know, a conversation to kind of coat them, I suppose, into believing that they are the right person. I don't think I've ever had the same conversation with a man (laughs) (laughs) who says, I don't think I'm the right person, that even if they're not the right person, they will do it anyway. Yeah. You know, that's something about men. And, and it's something I say, I belong, I ha- I'm part of a group on WhatsApp of very senior professional women. And sometimes we have a situation, we had a situation, I think about two years ago, where a particular woman was being put forward to be, to be governor of the, well, yeah, to head the central bank of Nigeria. And it was just, oh, this, she is in the running for the next central bank. Obviously she didn't get the role, but what was disturbing to me was there were some women in this group, which is supposed to be to support women who were like, oh, she hasn't earned it. Mm. And I'm thinking the incumbent of the role or the incumbent in the role is no more qualified than this woman. And also some of the other people that were 
lined up to take over the role were no more qualified than this woman. And I had to be vocal about it. And I just had to say, look, this is really not what we I signed up for. And this is not what we should be doing. But those of you who are in the industry, who feel that she's lacking in one or two areas, why don't you come alongside her and say, support her and say, you know what, I'm on standby. If you need any advice in this area, I'm on standby to help you with this, to give you some advice in this area and support her in the role. Because honestly, none of us really want to be in a role that we are totally 100% can do. Everybody is looking, especially at senior leadership, you're looking for that stretch role. Something that maybe you can do 70% and then the 30% is stretch for you. I don't think anybody wants to go into a role that they can do with their eyes closed. No, agreed. You challenge in the role, particularly if you're a leader. And so, you know, I think we judge ourselves as women too harshly. We feel we have to be overqualified for every role that comes up. And that 30% creates so much insecurity that it cripples us from being able to move forward and take up certain roles. And I think we also need that mind shift to say, look, I may not have it all, but I have what it takes to acquire the other 30% and even beyond and to outperform in this role in a very short space of time. I agree. And I, I think, you know, your comment on the group is about being more constructive around, you know, feedback and help and support. And I, you know, I hundred percent would agree with that. And I, I hope they did. <laughs> I hope they did as well. Like I mentioned, you know, you are part of the, of the 275 Influential Women Leaders Oil and Gas Council list. What accolades like that mean to you? Okay, so we just talked about women and being shy in taking up maybe stretch roles or promoting themselves. I also, it's something I'm working on. I'm less inclined to self-promote myself. <laughs> <laughs> I think men are far more at ease with self-promotion than women. However, again, I am, I was, and I am still very honored to have been selected. I think it's a recognition, first of all, of the hard work and the sacrifice of those women who have gone ahead of me in the industry and in society at large, pay the price to make it easier for me to get to this position. And it's also a recognition of my own hard work and all the sacrifices I have made. And, you know, I have made quite a lot of sacrifices from a point of view of even family, just the constantly having to train and retrain and be on the top of your game. And it serves as an opportunity for me to use that platform to advocate even more for gender equality, for corporate sustainability, which I 100% believe in, and for SDG advocacy as well, and to seek to pull other women up as well. I do mentor and coach and you know sponsor quite a number of women within the profession, within the legal profession, but also uh, a couple within the oil and gas industry as well. And I think that it's a wonderful opportunity and I am very honored to have been selected. Thank you. You're welcome. I think it was really important to us. You know, we made a commitment to launching the Women's Energy Council about probably about seven years ago now, based on the fact that, you know, we would go to a, or I would go to a drinks reception um, that we were holding and there were, I was sometimes the only woman <laughs> in the room. I think we've all been there. It's not great. So we, I, I really wanted to encourage that and, and make sure that wasn't the case. And we've, we've built on that in terms of having our own development goals around women on panels, women 
in, in the network, etc. But I completely agree that self-promotion is not natural for most women. And networking is also not always easy when the majority of, of the network is men. And I think having this list of, of that recognition for the individual, but also the opportunity to see and identify other women in the industry at the same level, you know, or, or in similar roles is also hopefully a benefit for those on it to be able to kind of see who else is, is there in, in the same boat. So it took a while to put together, but I think it was worth it. Well, just before we finish, I just have two kind of more personal questions. The first is really understanding from your perspective, you know, what you maybe consider to be your biggest achievement so far. Very interesting question. And I had to give a lot of thought to this. It's any one thing. I would say it's more that I have grown to become a person of influence. So for me, the biggest achievement is being able to positively influence so many people. Uh, there's a lot I do outside of work within the community. There's a lot I do in terms of just Apart from mentoring outside of work, I'm, I'm a member of council of the Nigerian Bar Association Women Forum. Just recently entered into a memorandum of understanding with the New York State Bar Association. And, you know, I head the external relations committee. So that was something that my committee kind of like made happen. Again, we're trying to extend our influence and extend our network. And it, it wasn't just a, a collaboration with the New York State Bar Association, but the, the women in law practice. So again, extending that boundary. I also sit on the board of the United Nations, the Global Compact Network in Nigeria, which is the local network of the United Nations Global Compact. So again, I've increased my sphere of influence within the country, within Nigeria, within my industry, and then outside of my industry. And I remember when I decided to really engage with the Nigerian Bar Association. Now, normally there, I don't, in Nigeria, the profession is, you know, we have barristers and we have, in the UK, you have barristers and you have solicitors. But in Nigeria, the profession is fused. But if you are not a lawyer that actually goes to court and is in private practice, your the, historically the involvement with the bar association is it's more the members in that go to court that advocate that are members of the bar association and there are very few corporate lawyers who are members of the bar association of the nigerian bar association but i decided to get involved because i wanted to change that and i felt i had something to give and certainly i've been able to achieve quite a lot very soon after i got involved i was appointed to the National Executive Council of the Bar Association. And that opportunity has enriched and widened my network tremendously. Also, my involvement with the United Nations Global Compact, again, has widened my sphere of influence. So I think my greatest achievement always is be, to be able to widen that sphere of influence in a positive way and make a positive difference, not just for myself, but for others who are coming after me and certainly also the leadership role that I play within my family, my extended family that, you know, I'm looked up to by my siblings for advice is a big thing <laughs> for me, you know, and, you know, the respect I have from my parents and my family, my peers, that means a lot because then you feel that, you know, you're making an impact, you know.
Definitely agree. So I, I guess if that's kind of biggest sense of achievement so far, what's the one career goal that you still have on your to-do list? Oh, wow. I have several. <laughs> I would love to do some more research in the area of corporate governance, thinking of doing a, a doctorate in corporate governance. And I have some ideas in my head that I would love to research further, get some kind of scientific data around and, you know, be able to publish something in this area and hopefully advance the practice of corporate governance. I'd love to become a certified life coach. That's something that eminent because I've just found that particularly working with young people that there is a need for guidance and guidance not so much in terms of where you are telling them what to do but inspiring them to see that they're able to do so much and that the solutions to the obstacles and the problems and the challenges they have is really in them and giving them the tools to be able to navigate and life and actually make the right decision another thing I do by the side is actually actually run a farm. I have a farm manager, <laughs> so he does the running of the farm, but I would love to retire into my own ranch. And that's kind of like the retirement plan and kind of started things going. So to run a large scale, successful fat produces organic, healthy food. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I would really, really love to do with happy animals. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that is actually my retirement plan as well. I'm hoping maybe I can retire soon <laughs> to do that. I um well, if I don't know when you have time to sleep. <laughs> it sounds like you have huge ambitions, you know, still to come and a fantastic career behind you already. So all the best for your next step and your next ambitions. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Amy. It's been a pleasure. And I'm glad to hear that we have uh, similar goals. We'll be exchanging ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed.